Hello and welcome to Almost 30 Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. It's Lindsay and Krista. Thank you for being here. Shall we take a deep breath? Let's take a deep breath. (laughs) (sighs) Yeah. It's interesting when you were saying earlier about sometimes when you someone's like, let's take a breath. Mm-hmm. There's that resistance where you're like, this is so annoying. This is so annoying. This is stupid. Yes. What are we doing? I know. I know. But it's all good. Breathing makes we the world breathe. makes the world go round, baby. We should breathe, baby. They were also so Sean Stevenson, our guest today, inspired a little bit of research. I was doing very, very minimal research, but <laughs> on breathing and its effect on um fat and metabolism, because that was a conversation topic we digged into today. And there is studies that say that breathing exercises can improve your digestion and your metabolism, Mm -hmm. that the extra supply of oxygen in your body helps in the burning of extra fat deposited in the body, which is what you were saying earlier. Yeah. Well, if you think about like your body as a machine (laughs) and it's like, you got to stoke the fire. Yes. And how do you stoke fire? You like blow on it or you whatever. A great analogy. Guys. Wow, that was genius, <laughs> that actually. Was genius. And there is like in um, Ayurveda, the fire of your digestive system. Mm-hmm. So they talk about, you know, that digestive fire that you want to stoke. Yeah. Um, so that was beautiful. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Both Lindsay and I are. Uh, we are fans of the Model Health Show. We've been listeners for a long time. And Sean is a true OG in the podcasting space, especially the Model Health Show is consistently on the top charts and provides really interesting data science-backed information that is so easy to consume because of how clear Sean is. So clear. And he truly sets the standard for me on research. He he told us he spends like 10 hours researching per episode before he sits down, which is no joke, really going through disseminating or going through information and discerning, you know, what the data says and then being able to translate it for an audience and do so accurately is, is an art. So that's why I love him in his show. And I also just love, especially in today's episode, there's just a heart-centeredness that Sean has and brings to everything he does that is palpable. And I think we forget what that feels like because in just kind of like in the current state of things, especially if we're taking in like the news, social media, just all of this information and noise, it's really hard sometimes to feel the heart. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciated his willingness to like be incredibly vulnerable and also just very heart open in our conversation. Yeah, this is a little bit longer than our usual interviews for good reason. We dug into so many awesome topics like the current state of health in the United States today. So we talked a lot about some data around the health status of the West, which seems to be dire mm-hmm. by a lot of what he talked about. And then we sort of talked about, you know, sort of what's going on, how these health issues such as obesity and um, heart disease are affecting the current COVID situation in the United States. We talked about metabolism and fat. So how metabolism affects our fat, different types of fat, which was fascinating. We talked a lot about the microbiome and in a way that felt new and interesting because I know we've talked about that a little bit before, but I felt like I learned Mm. a lot that I felt like I could apply to my life. And at the end, it was a lot of heart and it was a lot of that you know, really natural, beautiful conversation that we enjoy so much about the truth of you know, 2020 and beyond and what's going on in the world. Yeah. 
We also talk about fear and anxiety. We talk about hydration, which I thought was really fascinating, and the brain and how that affects your brain, which really stuck with me. (laughs) There's always like a few facts that I will never forget. And I think this is one of those conversations. And then, yeah, he shares just kind of personal stories about um, his life growing up and how that has influenced who he is today and why he shows up the way he shows up, as well as, you know, him being a father, you know, in the current state of things. So I think you're going to love this one. And, you know, all we ask is that you come with an open mind as we always do. And our intention with these conversations is not to convince you of anything, but really is to share information that we hope you can either use or not use and making the best decision for you. Yeah. And we're going to link all of the studies that are referenced in this interview in our show notes. So you can find all of the data around the things that are referenced here in our show notes. So that might help you if you're looking to dig in deeper and then use Sean's Instagram as a resource as well. You can find him on Instagram at Sean Model. That's S-H-A-W-N Model. And then his website is themodelhealthshow.com. His books are Eat Smarter and Sleep Smarter. They're both incredible bestsellers. Thank you all for listening to the Almost 30 podcast. If you are new here, make sure you subscribe so that the pods land in your inbox every single week. And if you feel inclined and love the show, please, please write a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It means a lot to us. We will see you on the other side of this one. Major announcement from Almost 30. We are hosting Space Camp on January 28th. This is our favorite event of the year. Camp Almost 30 has gotten a little bit of a rebrand because we were feeling like, I think we're ready to really go there (laughs) with our community. So we are welcoming guests who we feel have really taken us to a whole other planet in our interviews and in our conversations with them. So guests like Brie Melanson, she is going to be doing a workshop on psychic development, find and tap into your gifts. She is a teacher and channel and one who has really been such a support and teacher for Chris and I throughout the years. We are welcoming Jordan Younger. So she is going to help us find our galactic Origins. She is the podcast host of the Balanced Blonde podcast. She's an author. She's a spiritual teacher. We're also welcoming Lee Harris, who recently was on the podcast in a two-part episode, and he is going to channel the Z's live for us. How special. He does not do this often, so we feel very, very, very lucky. And we will also be welcoming Sandra Walter. So she is going to be teaching on Ascension 101 the crystalline grid and higher realm support. She is so special. She's a light worker and teacher and has been on the podcast. And Kristen and I are going to be sharing a very, very, very special experience, heavenly coated Reiki infused sound bath. And I'm excited for you all to join us. So this is happening on January 28th from 10 to 2 p.m. PST. Make sure you sign up. Space is limited, but it's absolutely free absolutely free. We're excited to welcome you. And this is the kickoff to membership opening. So membership is going to be open indefinitely now. So you can join membership for six months at a time and really, really focus uh, and support your growth. It is our favorite place to just come and be 
ourselves and really get super intimate with you all, more intimate than on the podcast. So I'm excited for you all to join the membership, but head to almost30.com slash space dash camp. That's almost30.com slash space dash camp space dash camp. (laughs) Say that 30 times. Almost30.com slash space dash camp to sign up for camp. Absolutely free. We will see you on January 28th. We'd come in and eat like a giant cookie as like breakfast and a snack. Well, 10 minute break. We got our soft sugar cookies (laughs) and I'd wonder why I'm like passed out in third period and unable to (laughs) do a quadratic equation. three chocolate milks at lunch. (laughs) In Ohio. What about, I mean, you didn't? I or, mean, not three chocolate milks. Yo, I, that was the one yo. right there. <laughs> yeah, no, for, for lunch, just about every day, I would get a personal little circle pizza. Of course. And I'd get a pretzel with cheese. Yes. And I would use the cheese to dip the pizza in. <laughs> yeah, that was, I was making myself out of that every wow. day. So. And also, I remember them coming to the school for promotions. Like we had a really, the school that I went to in Missouri is like the, you know, one of the top schools in the, in the, in the state. And so like a lot of promotions would come there. And so like energy drinks, Surge Soda Mm, came to our school. I remember Surge. And so like we got all these free samples and then we didn't really have a lot of money. So I took more of the free samples and, you know, take them home. And, you know, it's just, it's so interesting where nobody's asking what is the impact this is having on our students Mm -hmm. versus here's this check. It's just soda, you know, and just integrating this into the culture Mm -hmm. and into the fabric of the school. And it's not that our teachers or facilitators were bad people. It's just part of the culture. Mm -hmm. We didn't know any better. But when we do, the question is, what do we do about it? Mm -hmm. And that's when you get into a little bit more tension because things are so solid in the way that the systems are, systems are built. This is why I'm so excited about this time mm-hmm. because everything is so fluxed up mm-hmm. and it's more malleable. It might seem absolutely nuts and a, a big struggle right now, but I feel that the, the decisions that we make right now, we can literally create a new form of healthcare system. You know, So it's pretty exciting. Healthcare, education, I feel like there's so many aspects of our everyday lives as adults and as kids that is in total flux. Mm -hmm. And what do you, yeah, I'm curious just as someone who is an expert in the health space, like what opportunities are you seeing specifically, especially as a dad too? Mm. So specifically for the health space, I'll talk Mm -hmm. about that, which is really exciting you know, because our traditional model of healthcare, I don't think a lot of folks realize what this current state is. And so I've been really advocating and sharing some of these statistics, every opportunity that I get, because the state of affairs is not really good. Mm. Uh, We've got about, right now we're knocking on the door of almost 250 million US citizens are overweight or obese. All right. We've got about 130 million citizens are diabetic or pre-diabetic. We've got 60% of our citizens have some degree of heart disease already. And and really this really well done meta-analysis just came out. And it basically concluded that about only only 12% of United States citizens are metabolically healthy, right? This isn't to mention 115 million adults are regularly sleep deprived. This isn't to mention about 50, upwards of 50 million folks with an autoimmune condition now. 
I can keep going on and on and on and on. The question is, how do we get to this state? Because most of these issues have skyrocketed in the last three decades, four decades. And one of those areas of emphasis for me is children. Just since 1980, the rate of obesity in children has tripled. And it's just like, how, mm-hmm. why are we not doing something about this? It's not okay because we have this, this phenomenon of recidivism where mm-hmm. getting locked in that state where you're dealing with your weight when you're young, it becomes exponentially more difficult when you get older. And so what does this do? This radically increases your risk of all manner of diseases that I just mentioned are killing all of us. I don't know if you guys remember, but of course you remember, some of these conditions were kind of relegated to old age, mm-hmm. like heart attacks, stroke, diabetes. cancer, mm-hmm. diabetes. Mm-hmm. That happens when you're old. It's successively getting younger and younger and younger when these things are occurring. To the degree we have so many of these incidents taking place in children. We even had to change the name of, it used to be called, called adult onset diabetes. Now it's type two diabetes because mm. it's not just in adults anymore. And so this is just a snapshot of the state of affairs. And again, it's not good. And the question is, what's going on behind the scenes to make it like this? Mm-hmm. And what can we actually do to change it? And so one of the big things that I'm seeing shifting right now is in the education system, but not conventional education, which is another big issue we can kind of come mm-hmm. back to. Um, but it's more folks that are really, because of our access at our fingertips to more knowledge than, you know, presidents of a few decades ago having access to. And more folks are, are being adamant about getting self-educated, learning about their own bodies, learning, they want to feel good. They want to feel better. They want to be more successful. They want to look good, all the things. Then, but then, you know, just a caveat that can get it to an unhealthy place as well, mm-hmm. potentially, mm-hmm. but there's a lot more folks. This is why podcasts are so epic. Is they're so the platform is is massive now, and you know it's really exciting. But in in healthcare specifically, the need and the desire for more people who are doing integrative medicine, functional medicine, health coaching, you know, um, going to different institutes and getting certifications. Mm-hmm. You know, various, I mean, the fitness side of things as well as just exploded. There are a lot more folks who are seeking education outside of this cookie cutter framework. And I just shared this with you guys. Actually, today I just taught, I did a guest lecture for the students at NYU. Shout out to if any NYU students mm-hmm. are listening um, for the neuroscience department. And these tenets that I've been teaching for, I've been in this field for 20 years, are now integrating themselves into higher education. You know, I'm working with folks at Stanford. I'm working with folks at Harvard to help to kind of jettison the old paradigm and like create a hyperlink to a new way of education. Because a lot of folks don't don't know this. It takes on average, once we have a, you know, solid randomized placebo controlled trial demonstrating the efficacy of fill in the blank, it can take well over a decade for it to actually get integrated into practice, get integrated into education. On average, it's about 17 years historically. And the craziest thing is that's still happening though we have the internet. So like you can literally check and and see like that thing's obsolete. But if it's in the education system, if somebody graduated Mm. with that same way of thinking, it's very difficult 
because of our indoctrination mm-hmm. to be able to put that bias to the side and to accept the new way of thinking. So that's the exciting part is that more people are jumping in, learning about their own bodies, wanting to educate themselves, get their families healthy. And then it becomes a contagious thing as well. You know, mm-hmm. even though sickness has been contagious, health is really contagious as well. So people are like, I want to share this with more people. I want to, you know, help my, my sister. I want to help my, you know, my neighbors. And it just kind of grows from there. That's definitely what happened with me and why I'm here today. On the overweight or obese piece, I want to like pull apart after this, what exactly is going on and why we're sort of seeing these happen. Is it based on like the BMI or what sort of, how is that measured? Because, you know, that's been something that I've wondered too, is, is the BMI the most accurate method of measuring our health in that way? So how is that measured? Yeah, it's, it's done off of BMI, okay. but that is not the best metric yeah. of, for health because it could, you know, if it's a, a NFL running back, he might be 5'10 and 220 pounds and, you know, you'd be classified as overweight. Mm-hmm. But we know for the majority of people that BMI is going to be an accurate uh, average or aver- a- accurate assumption mm-hmm. of where we are with our health. Better metrics would be, you know, body fat measurements, things of that nature. But, you know, obviously that's more mm-hmm. complicated to be able to, to, to extract that information. So that's such a great question mm-hmm. because, but this is getting into the minutia of mm-hmm. like where we should be. I want to talk about the small things, mm-hmm. but we don't even have the big stuff. I know, I know, a hundred percent. And there's so many different like levers we could pull on this of of what it is, whether it's education, whether it's our healthcare system, whether it's our government or our media. But what do you see as like some some huge factors for how we're missing the mark, or like how we've got to this place, and how we continue down this path of greater levels of obesity, greater levels of diabetes, heart disease, all of these things. And then, lastly, are we talking about the West? Like, is this United States focused? Yeah, this is definitely an international phenomenon wow. that's taking place for sure. Mm-hmm. But the United States is the leader. Mm-hmm. We have the highest rate of we're obesity. We're the leader in everything. Yeah, <laughs> we like to be the best. We're the best. <laughs> we're the best, baby. You know, wave the flag. We're we're the LeBron James <laughs> yes. of fatness. We're, like, we're going to be fat. We're going to all be yes. fat. Yes. <laughs> we're 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 the best at it. You yes, know? we're the and, best. You know, here's the, so. I think it's important for us to to understand. In my opinion, and I've had the opportunity to work with thousands of people, in, you know, in a close context, and then millions of folks through books and all these different things that I've had the ability to interact with and to share and to teach. But the folks that I've worked with in a personal context, I've seen one of the consistent pieces missing in this weight weight loss phenomenon. You know, most people that were coming into my into my clinic were folks that wanted to to, to lose mm-hmm. weight, they wanted to be in shape, they wanted to feel good about themselves. One of the biggest issues is folks are trying to fight something they don't understand. Mm-hmm. They're trying to get rid of something that they don't understand. They don't understand how it works. They don't understand how it got there. All they know about is deprive myself to get where I want to go. All right. Now, even the words that I'm saying can start to paint a, an unhealthy picture or maybe an inaccurate view of how this actually works. Now, where did this idea come from? My first day of nutritional science class in college, this big auditorium, classroom, the very first day, the teacher said, if you can control calories, you can control your weight. Now, he was overweight, significantly overweight himself. 
he believed what he was saying. And I know that he had experienced what so many of the patients I work with experience, which is a state of learned helplessness and feeling like he's just doing it wrong. He's not doing it hard enough, mm. right? It's this calorie metric. I just need to manage my calories e- efficiently and I'll get there. I just need to, he's just feeling, I know in his mind at that time, I just need to cut calories more. Yeah. And so now here's where we are today. And what I really helped to impress into culture is this term I want everybody to, to take in and remember, it's called epicaloric control, right? Epicaloric control. So what we know today is that there are several factors that actually control what calories do in your body. It's not that calories don't matter, but we've got to be able to step back and take a meta perspective and ask simple questions that can get overlooked when we're just caught in the stuff, which is where the hell did calories come from? Like, where did this concept come from? And so what I did was I went back and investigated the entire story. And there were even the calorie, the term, it didn't come, it was nothing about food. It was used in physics and engineering. And eventually it's par- it parlayed its way into food. And even the way that we look at calories. So what it is, is it, it's a measurement of energy, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's kind of the box that is put in. But what type of energy? Because the human body isn't, a calculator. Mm-hmm. It's more like a very dynamic chemistry lab. There's so many different things happening and your, your metabolism is so unique to you. Calories literally, and we can share some of this data on this, how two people can be on the exact same diet, twins. And I talked about this in my latest mm-hmm. book, Eat Smarter. And there's a great database of identical twins and this was coming from researchers in St. Louis, which was you know my hometown, mm-hmm. which is really awesome. But what they were doing was looking at how changes in the microbiome of one twin affects their rate of obesity compared to the other. If they're on the same diet and the same environment, same exercise exposures, all that. And so they found conclusively that when one of the twins, identical twins, has a microbiome cascade that is associated with obesity and insulin resistance, they in fact have higher rates of obesity and insulin resistance versus their twin who has what we, you know, we can kind of put in this term of quote, lean bacteria Mm -hmm. cascade and being very um, superficial with this, but that's what we see. Mm -hmm. So we know that even your microbial fingerprint can affect your caloric assimilation and expenditure. So really quickly, People are fighting something they don't understand. So I'll just share really quickly if I can what yeah. fat is. Can we do that? Mm-hmm. Yes, okay, yes. cool. All right. Mm-hmm. So. Yes. I was just thinking of the twins for a second, how much money these people get paid. They're probably mm. like, every scientist is like, we need twins. <laughs> Those ah, twins are just, yes. yes. You're like, yes, more twins. <laughs> so we've got different types of, of fat communities in our bodies. First, let's, well, actually, I'll come back to this. I'll come back to this. It's very important. It's, it's like a, a it's it's going to be one of those things that changes the way you you think and feel. Because when you say fat, like people feel a certain. Yes, way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. you know, it's a charged word where we're like, we need to get rid of fat or mm-hmm. not eat so much fat yes. or burn fat. Yeah, to, like with certain trends, you're like, oh, I need my healthy fats, and I need. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. true. So, yeah, okay. you just said it perfectly. That's exactly where I was going to go. I was going to touch on that. So, let's talk about storage fats first. That's one of the communities. So storage fats are one of the greatest 
evolutionary adaptations that we've had, it's enabled us as a species to be able to survive when we have a scarce access to food. Mm. So it's, it is literally evolved to help us to survive. So number one, being a storage source of energy to just do stuff, to be human. It's also protection against, you know, falls and, you know, trauma and things like that. And this is a whole other, even that being a protection for trauma, this can be a really dense box to open up. And also it's a, it's a, it's a communicative vessel or layer for data transmission throughout your entire body, all right? Fat is really remarkable. So what types of fats do we have as storage fats? There's three main categories of this. So we've got subcutaneous fat, which is the fat that's kind of just below your skin. And you know, if you think about the fat on your arms, on your thighs, on your butt, we can have some on our belly, but it's more the stuff that we can pinch. The stuff that's a little bit harder to grab on the belly, that's called visceral fat. And visceral fat is the big problem. It's the big issue today um, because visceral fat specifically dramatically increases your risk of diabetes, heart disease, cancer, the list goes on and on. It just dramatically increases your risk of dying early. So it's dangerous. But again, we evolved to have some of it and it's kind of like the place that your body would normally store last. Mm. So the last one is intramuscular fat. This is one a lot of folks haven't probably heard about. And intramuscular fat is when I was in, again, I'm gonna go back to my college class one more time, even though it, I was miseducated. <laughs> um, I was taught that they're, that fat and muscle are di- dichotomous. Like they don't really, they're two different things, right? They're separate. You want to build the muscle, burn the fat. But intramuscular fat is literally used as onside energy for your muscles all the time. So even as we're sitting here and moving around, moving our arms, we need to be so thankful for our intramuscular fat to actually fuel the activity of the muscles. Now, even that type of storage fat can be overfilled with energy. Mm-hmm. And we get this phenomenon called like, quote, chubby muscles, right? So these are storage fats and they have, we've evolved these capacities to help us again to survive. Our body fat is literally trying to help us to survive. We could not survive without it. It's just doing what it's designed to do. Now, it can be a bit clingy, you know, but it's just doing what it's programmed to do. And today, again, it's because we are hardwired to have times when we don't have that much access to food. Now we have 24, Mm -hmm. 11, you know, Mm -hmm. I just added some extra days of the week. We have so much access (laughs) to food perpetually that these mechanisms that are primed for a certain way of existence are no longer, they're obsolete in a sense. But your genes don't care. Your body doesn't care. Your cells don't care. These fat cell communities don't care. They're just doing what they're programmed to do. All right, so that's sub- that, those are storage fats. Next is brown adipose tissue. And I'm going to share another one too. These are a fat cell community that actually this type of fat Versus storing fat, it burns fat, right? So it's a fat cell community that burns fat for fuel, but it has some of the same functions as the other type of fat in in, in its ability to kind of sustain itself Mm -hmm. in a sense. And so brown adipose tissue, it has this very strong thermogenic effect. 
and it helps to warm, keep your body warm. Babies have a lot of brown fat, okay? And so as we get older, the, our brown fat ratio drops, but we still have some as an adult. It's usually like up around our collarbones, our sternum, uh, on our, our shoulder blades, kind of down our spine, we mm-hmm. have some. And so, but now we know today there's so many different modalities that we can utilize to increase our brown fat ratio, the mobility activity of it, basically increase your metabolic rate just to do your day-to-day stuff that you're normally doing. You're just be burning more calories because you have a higher ratio of brown fat. Now, here's the other one. This is a newly discovered beige fat. Beige fat. Now, beige fat is really interesting. It is unique. It's coming from beige fat stem cell precursors. So it's not like the other types of fat but it has the ability to become both types of fat. It can become white adipose tissue or storage fats, or it can become brown adipose tissue, right? So also again, the storage fats, they're sometimes called white adipose tissue. So now the question is, how do we make this beige fat get a tan and become a little Mm -hmm. bit more brown, the brownish type versus becoming another white adipose tissue storage site? And again, there's many different modalities and we can come back and talk about some of these things to, to nudge it into that brown fat domain. I'll just throw one in here real quick. And this is not to be dogmatic about any of these subjects. This is just what the data shows. So one of the cool studies that I broke, I broke this down in, in Eat Smarter, but essentially researchers used uh, fMRIs and they actually were looking at activity of our brown fat when people drink coffee. And they saw that this part, these areas of the body starts to light up and we can see that there's a nudging of beige fat into brown fat when, it in, when your cells interact with coffee. All coffee right? specifically or caffeine? Mm. Coffee. Coffee, yeah, wow. And you think about even the color of it, right? Mm-hmm. See, th- these are getting into a little bit more philosophical things. That's what I like. Mm-hmm. But there are some really solid, even the, this term, the doctrine of signatures, mm-hmm. which has been something utilized for thousands of years, thousands of years, where our ancestors were like, certain foods will tell you what they're good for based on the way they look, Mm. how they smell, how they taste, how they operate in nature. So we've got these storage fat. We've got communities that burn fat. Last community I'll share is we've got structural fats. Okay. So your brain, for example, Mm. is made of primarily these structural fats. Your brain, people hear this all the time, your brain is mostly fat. That's the dry weight of the brain. The brain is mostly water, first and foremost. So your brain is, and this is an important caveat, upwards of 80% water. The dry weight of the brain is primarily fat, but it's structural fat. So we'll just stick on this one, but we got to talk about this water piece. It's the biggest piece. So of these structural fats of the brain, this is fats in the brain are... Let me. Get, I want to give you one good example. All right. So let's say, what sport did you play? What was your favorite sport? Tennis. Tennis. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the first time you picked up a racket, how old do you think you were? I think I was like five. Five? Mm-hmm. Okay. So that five-year-old picking up that racket and giving it a swing, prob- I don't know how it turned out. It probably wasn't like this, the, the greatest stroke you've ever made. Right. You know? But over time of you doing that same repetition... It got easier and easier and more automatic. You didn't have to think about it. You didn't have to think about hand position, foot position, any of that stuff. It just becomes automatic. Mm -hmm. As we repeat things, your brain starts to lay down more myelin over these nerve firings connecting. So it's kind of like insulation around a a nerve pathway. 
And so as that's happening, that's like Steph Curry, for example. Like that's how he could just shoot a three-pointer from all these different weird, kooky angles and, you know, just have mm-hmm. such accuracy. He's done it so much. It's just really ingrained in his system. He's laid down those pathways with myelin. Myelin is a fatty sheath. All right. So these structural fats are used to make the brain. Now, here's the, the good news in a sense. Structural fats, because in those times of famine, as we evolved, when we don't have access to food, our body's using our body fat. If your brain was made of body fat, we'd be, we'd be screwed because your <laughs> body would literally use your brain for fuel. So like homemade zombie food, yes. right? But these structural fats are able to maintain their integrity. So it's a different type of fat, but they're enabling a lot of different uh, neurological processes, cognitive processes. So yeah, so this is just a summation. We can mm-hmm. dig in deeper. I want to share one more little point here with the water just really quickly. I just went through, you know, like I said, I just taught this class, this uh, neuroscience class. And one of the biggest things, the teacher, you know, she was asking, um, you know, the, the tip, the usual teacher, the professor in the class, what are some tips for, you know, they've got finals coming up, you know, whatever, or midterms, whatever she, she said. And I was talking about a little bit of this brain anatomy. And one of the things that folks don't realize we're looking for this nootropic, like some limitless pill. We got to take mm-hmm. this supplement, that supplement, but we don't have these foundational pieces. Again, like I want to talk about the cool stuff we could do, but the Journal of Neurology just published a study and they found that just literally just short-term dehydration can shrink the volume of your brain. Mm. That is not good. Wow. Like your brain literally shrinks and rehydration rapidly restores the volume of your brain. So your brain is especially subject to dehydration and just a 2% drop in your body's hydration level can lead to significant cognitive declines. You know, medicine and science and sports and exercise published a study on that. So basic stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Are mm-hmm. you hydrating yourself, your brain, your nervous tissue, your fat also, you know, that interaction with, with you know, building your, your muscle also has density with, you know, with water and the list goes on and on. These are very foundational mm-hmm. principles. So I wanted to start with that, mm-hmm. understanding what your fat is doing, the different fat cell communities, and start to appreciate the innate intelligence of our bodies. It's miraculous. Mm-hmm. Like your body is so amazing and it loves you. Like it, it has no choice but to love you. Even with autoimmunity, the body is trying, it mm-hmm. thinks that it's doing something to protect you. And if we're trying to guilt ourselves, if we're trying to abuse ourselves, if we're trying to, you know, force ourselves into change, those two energies are so conflicting, you know, and I saw it so many times people trying to beat their bodies into submission or, or hate their bodies into submission instead of understanding and appreciating this hyper-intelligent, incredible body that you're living in and understanding it, getting to know it, and then doing things that are supportive and loving. Metabolism, has, there's this like, there's this loss as far as understanding about metabolism and fat and thinking that they don't work together. Maybe that's like kind of my preconceived notion. Um, but I'm going to 
speak for our audience as a whole. And I'm wondering how, you know, especially our environment, things that we don't necessarily expect to affect our metabolism is hindering it firing at a really healthy rate or way. Can you speak to those those factors and how how it can be affected? Yes, this is exactly where we need to go. So now that we know what we're dealing with here, how do we get these systems to actually do the things that we want them to do? Mm. So I talked a little bit about the epicaloric controllers, right? So we've got this energy metric in food, calories. It's a very blanket statement. It's very complex. But even how we find calories, you know, how many calories are in a certain food stuff, they put it in a container, which goes into another container filled with water. You incinerate the food and how much energy it gives off or how much energy is needed to heat the water up. That's going to determine how many calories are in there. You are not that contraption. Like your mm-hmm. body is so different. It's a bomb calorimeter is what it's called. Mm. And, you know, you might be the bomb, but you're not a bomb <laughs> calorimeter. And it's very different. Because even in that, there's indigestible fact, mm-hmm. uh, factors to food too. And that measurement of calories doesn't even take any of that into consideration or how it's feeding your microbiome. And lastly, the system that, and I'm just going to drop this for everybody, that is on your food label when you're looking at your, the packages in your grocery store, they're not actually measuring the calories in the food. They don't do that. There's a, there's, it's like grass like generally regarded as safe, there's generally regarded as true as well. Mm. And so what they're doing is that water system, which is just basically doing some math. Like, okay, we know that this amount of calories is in this particular food. They're just doing calculations and throwing that food label on there. All right, so just giving you the heads up and also the calories are gonna affect you differently. So here's how we have this association to improve. One of the epicaloric controllers is the type of food itself. All right, the type of food itself. and This really interesting study, what they did was they were trying to find out how a meal of processed foods would affect the metabolism versus a meal of what they deem to be whole foods, all right? And I broke this this study all down as well in, in Eat Smarter, but I'll just give you the cliff notes. So really quickly, so what it was, was they took one sandwich that they called it a whole food sandwich, right? So it was whole grain bread and cheddar cheese and gave it to the test participants. Then they had the processed food sandwich, which was white bread and cheese product, right? Which is like Kraft, basically. Mm-hmm. It's called Kraft Singles mm-hmm. because so nasty. you can't <laughs> legally call it cheese. It's, it literally, it's not that. in the fridge, dude. It like sits in the I don't aisle. Know way. That. Dude, I used to eat Velveeta shells and cheese eh, all the yeah, time. I, that was a meal. Like I would Yo, just get 100%. the family box and just Same. Singles. Dude, so <laughs> I remember cheese. once I made too much, I almost got sick. I was like, yeah, I'm done. <laughs> We're done. Shells and cheese. That ooh, it came out with the liquid the instead of the powder. Yes. I mean, like the you know. The, the <laughs> You're ooze. like this is luxury. <laughs> it's just like fillers and oils. <laughs> so they had test subjects to consume each of these sandwiches. And long story short, just to kind of pinpoint the data, what they discovered was that when folks ate the processed food sandwich, they had a fifty percent reduction in calorie burn after eating that meal versus when they ate the whole food sandwich. All right, a 50% reduction in their rate of calorie burn. Okay. Now the question is why? Because it, what it did was we have a, a accelerated metabolic response over here and we have a depressed metabolic response over here. Eating this, and here's the biggest, I, I almost didn't say this, 
the cal- the sandwiches were the same amount of calories, mm. same mm. amount of fats, proteins, and carbohydrates. But the sheer fact that it was heavily processed versus a more whole food version created a, a depression to the metabolism. And the question is why? Well, what it's doing essentially is creating these, I'm just, cre- uh, just going to share a term to kind of make sense of it, but it's sort of like a hormonal, a hormonal clog is taking place where these systems of metabolism are getting blocked mm. and they're not functioning in integrity. And I, there's m- multiple facts here. There's some immune response factors. Mm-hmm. There's factors, of course, with the mm. stress that the body has to go through to try to make sense of something that is so abnormal. You know, the list goes on and on and on at the reasons why, but here's one of the biggest things when we're doing a point system or we're you know haphazardly cutting our calories, what is the quality of food that we're bringing in when we bring food in? Because it can be suppressing and depressing your metabolism significantly just based on that food quality. Not to say that a point system won't work or that counting calories won't work. These can be tools, but they are far from being the only tool. And as a matter of fact, the rung of importance is so much lower than these epicaloric controllers. So I'll share two more really quickly. So number one, the type of food itself dramatically determines how your fat cells and their processing is going to associate with the food that you eat and its expenditure. Another one is what we talked a little bit about earlier is your microbiome. You have a unique microbial fingerprint that is never, nobody on planet earth has ever, all the billions of people and the people that have come before us have never had a, a microbiome exactly like yours or a metabolism like yours for that matter. And nobody in the future ever will either. And this is the most important part. Yourself later today is going to have a different microbiome cascade mm-hmm. than you have right now. It is constantly changing, constantly in flux. And so now we know that we have, and again, I shared a little bit of, uh, of this data, but this is probably the hottest, it's kind of gross and weird though. Mm-hmm. The hottest field of study is the gut mm-hmm. right now. And for good reason. You know, even Hippocrates said all disease begins in the gut, mm-hmm. you know, but it's just like, forget. Hippocrates, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, it's just, it's so crazy. We knew these things already, but a big reason for this is that what's happening in that terrain is literally determining what food is going to become you. It's such a big deal. It's such a big job. Mm-hmm. And the amount of stress taking place in this environment or the, the nature of the environment itself, is it a healthy environment? Is it like a, is it a, a, a rainforest type environment where there's a dynamic um, kind of um, diverse, diverse, uh, effective, you know, climate and all the different Mm -hmm. things. Everything is modulated Mm -hmm. effectively. Or is it like we've got another aspect of diversity? It could be endangered species or things are going extinct, you know? And so now this is what we see if we look at hunter-gatherer tribes and take a look at their microbiome versus the average American and you see four times more diversity. And just to give a glimpse on what that is, just say you've got a thousand different bacteria, they got 4,000. You got 2,000, they got, you know, 8,000, mm. four times as many. <laughs> but we don't really understand when, we, when you hear things like that, why? What's mm-hmm. happening? Why are we having so many bacteria go extinct? And it's because of the way that we're eating. Because every bacteria requires something to nibble on. It's just like anything. If we don't have food, we can't stick around. And there's a preferred food substrate or prebiotic for every 
probiotic. And for years, like even, you know, early on, people were coming in and, you know, I was really on top of the probiotic science, but I was so focused on probiotics and not the essence of it. Like where, where did this come, where, where was this at before probiotic supplements existed mm-hmm. versus me trying to find the best probiotic supplement? The foundational piece is in order to increase the diversity, because here's the very best data that we have. As your diversity of microbes goes down, your weight goes up. As your diversity of microbes go down, your insulin resistance goes up. Cognitive impairment goes up. I can keep going on. We've got data on all of these things now. And so we want to increase our diversity. How do we do that? We've got to increase the diversity of foods that we eat. It's very simple. We've got to provide the food, the appetizers for the friendly flora to to feel welcome. And so even today, if we're haphazardly doing these elimination diets, we might be eliminating some healthy foods Mm -hmm. that we need to have a healthy microbiome. This is what what I've seen with, with folks doing an elimination diet, getting well, losing weight, and then having problems two years later. And they're just like, why? And then they try to do the diet that got them there. And they're just like, I'm not doing it well enough. I got to restrict more carbs. I got to, you know, cut, mm-hmm. I got to keto harder. I've got to, you know, whatever it is, I've got to vegan harder, paleo harder, and not actually taking into account what you need right now. And so I want to share this little nugget of wisdom, which is whenever you eat a food, you're eating that food's microbiome. So if you're eating a berry, you're eating that berry's microbiome and taking it on. If you're eating an avocado, you're t- eating, taking that avocado's microbiome on. So the diversity that we can bring in, especially during the seasons, because that's what the researchers found too, is that these hunter-gatherers were eating in accordance to the season. You know, here we live in LA, we can get whatever we want whenever we want, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's not normal. And that's okay. It's not to say like you can't have your favorite food, but once we habitually are eating the same stuff over and over, mm-hmm. even if we're healthy and we're eating, you know, organic, we're eating, you know, our metabolic typed, whatever, we can easily fall into a rut of eating the same things over and over and over again. And so paying a little bit more of attention to what's in season, just adding in mm-hmm. a little bit, you know, you don't have to completely overhaul your diet, just seek diversity, you know? So that's what I want to, one step for everybody to take today is this week, add in, you know, three different foods that you haven't eaten in a while. You know, maybe you've been doing a lot of greens, you know, kale or whatever. And now just why don't you do some uh, asparagus? Let's Mm -hmm. go hit some asparagus and get that weird pee, Mm -hmm. you know, that a lot of people (laughs) get. (laughs) With with the microbiome piece, then I'm thinking about meat. And then I'm also thinking about... um, like fruit and vegetables like you talked about. So the microbiome quality of the fruit and vegetables would be based on the soil. And then for the meat, the microbiome quality would be based on the soil and the food that they're eating. So when we're thinking about like quality of microbiome diversity of the things we're eating that eventually become us, that is where that matters. Yeah. So the the term really for this is that it's not you are what you eat. Yeah. You are what you eat ate. Right? So whether it's the plant kingdom or animal kingdom, every, everything's eating something, all right? Even our plants are eating something and they're eating things that, you know, they're taking on things from bacteria, from, you know, from the soil, microbes, whatever the case might be. You know, recycled other plants are getting assimilated by these plants. Everything on earth eats something. 
And so what are, what are the foods that we're eating actually exposed to? Mm-hmm. And this is one of the biggest issues today. I was actually just talking with this really great researcher at UCLA. He's been studying the microbiome for 40 years. Wow. So this has only become a hot topic in the last maybe 10 years. Mm-hmm. And so he was doing this when people thought he was a looney tune. Mm-hmm. Like, what are you talking about? The gut and they... You know, and now he's got a new project looking at the gut and the immune system, obviously, with all that's going on in the world. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, he's like, I've been known this. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's respect. Really... I think it's always like, I think I'm early on stuff. And then you hear about that, you're like, yo. Yeah, it's so crazy. You know, like for me, my greatest teacher is my, my mother-in-law. Mm-hmm. Like she is my mm-hmm. man. I just- Say more. So, so blown away by her. I mean, when I met her- <laughs> when my wife first brought me over to their to their place, she was like, listen, because they're from Kenya. Mm-hmm. And she was like, listen, you're going to see some weird stuff in here. <laughs> Don't listen to them. They're crazy. You know, uh, there's all this, all this weird food in there. And so I, I go in and there's certain, there's like grass in the house. Like it was like a wheatgrass tray. Cool. But I was like, I've never seen grass inside, you know? <laughs> And, you know, she was juicing and all this stuff. And this was like, you know, uh, 17 years ago. And she had been doing it for a long time. She also been teaching meditation for decades at that point too. And come to find out, and I didn't know this at the time, but I saw, and I, I, the thing is, I, because I didn't see it with my own eyes still, I hold this place of hesitancy to even share the story because I'm very much like, unless I see the data and proof, I don't like to talk about it, but I trust my wife. If mm-hmm. I don't, I mean, she's, mm-hmm. she's going to murder me. <laughs> so um, my mother-in-law used to walk with a cane and I saw the canes, you know? So she had like a nice cane, like if she's going somewhere or whatever. And then she had like her everyday cane. The person that I know, like she was just doing sprints with us. Wow. You know, dancing and doing lunges at the track. Like, and she's, she's in that category of senior citizen, but she is so robustly healthy and, 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 and so much vitality. And she was able to turn this around by changing her nutrition. And at the time I was still in college, that's where I met my wife. And I really, this is, this is such a humbling thing. Mm-hmm. I think all of us do have to go through this point where we really think we know what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And I really thought I knew what I was talking about then. Because I was fit, you know, I, I was helping people, not everybody, but I was helping people, you know, to achieve some fitness. So I really thought I knew my stuff. But it was in that moment when I, even though I transformed my health, my own health, and I had a so-called incurable spinal condition when I was 20. And it's very, it, was a, it was a severe degeneration of my spine, my disc, disc degenerative disease. Mm. And I, I reversed the condition, even though it was so-called incurable, but it took a couple of years before I realized that I could do anything about it. Long story short. So I was experiencing the state of health. I was helping people. I'd been kind of re- running my own entrepreneurial thing. I was working at the university gym as well. And, but I would, every year I was still getting hay fever and I would get, mm-hmm. I had asthma and allergies and you know, pop back up. And so I had actually went to the ER and I can't believe that I'm even saying this because it's so not a part of my reality, but I just couldn't breathe, you know, like it was a, mm. it was a nightmare. And so I went to the ER, got my 
antibiotics. They didn't test me for a bacterial infection, by the way. Wow. And then, you know, I was going by their place. My mother-in-law was like, so my daughter tells me that you are, you know, having, having these allergies. And I was like, yeah, you know, it's the weather. And she was like, is the problem out there or is the problem in you? And that like, Yo. straight up, that was a Neo Matrix moment. Yes. I was like, oh, what? Yo. And I realized that there was something off in my internal environment. I shouldn't be allergic to the world. You yeah. know, like mm-hmm. I was in the world all this time. Why mm-hmm. is this kind of devolved? And so I realized that I had some trigger foods that was creating this histamine reaction. I pulled those foods out. I, I even have them today every now and then. What were they? Uh, I don't like to say because okay, I don't want people to know. I, I want to, sh- I'm going to okay. share. Okay. I'm going to share, but it's, this is my case. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody's mm-hmm. different. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was dairy. Mm-hmm. Primarily, dairy was the big one because I was still, I was doing like my organic granola, whatever. I was, had the best milk. It was like from, yeah, I don't know if like from, um, there was like Amish people on the bottle. And, <laughs> You know, That's my it was like yeah. non, it was pasteurized, but not homogenized. Like I was trying to do the best I could, yes. yeah. but I still, I had to have my milk. And now I know like, it's really an addiction. There's casomorphines, mm. right? So there are these, there are these compounds in milk that really create this excitement in the brain, right? So there's same thing with, with bread, you know, there's gluteomorphines, for example. These are things I didn't know about. Like people come in, like I do it every say, just don't take my bread. Yeah, I didn't even, I literally didn't even tell them that they yes. were going to do that. You know, they just had it in their minds, yes. you know? So for me, and I, I can have some dairy now, like it's not that big of a deal, but mm-hmm. it's, but I know if I have a little bit too much, I start feeling a little, but now, you know, I haven't had any, <laughs> I mean, it's so weird to even say this, asthma, allergies, all this stuff is just not a part of my reality anymore. So yeah. anyways, that humbling moment where I realized like, that's why I feel that I'm in this position today because every time when I go into the data, I'm thinking about what am I not seeing? How am I wrong? Literally asking, how am I wrong? Looking at the total opposite perspective as well, which is incredibly difficult to do today. Mm-hmm. But looking at the perspective of somebody who thinks the exact opposite, what would they see in this data? So I can come to a rational, logical, well-balanced conclusion. So... Thank you to my mother-in-law for that. Wow. The allergy thing is interesting because I feel like I've been having allergies lately and I think it's trigger foods. I think it's nuts. So I think that was like a little message that I got there. But regarding looking at data and looking at information, that's something we really respect you for is like the lens and approach you take to information. And I think it's becoming increasingly difficult for people to discern and disseminate information that they're receiving because we're just like at a fire hose every single day of like self-help stuff, health-related things, all this information that we can find online. And I think people get a little tired of having to feel like they have to determine things and eventually give up. But a lot of what you found in the past couple months and in the past year with everything that's changed with COVID has been incredibly profound to us and just so fascinating and interesting. What was like the beginning of that journey where everything started to go down with COVID and you were like, okay, I'm going to research this thing and understand this. Like, What's your process been like? Because I'm curious if you felt like you found information that's even surprised you along the way. Sure. Thank you for asking this. This is so cool. So I was paying attention to the data from other countries before this ever 
showed up in America. You know, I was looking at the data in, in Italy specifically. And I saw really early on, I was watching these dubbed uh, press conferences from their health minister and all kinds of just weird, nerdy stuff that I was doing. <laughs> Your wife's like, yeah. I know, Here she's he just like, again. what? She'll come home she and see me watching this stuff. She's like, you're such a nerd. Yeah, she's like, here he goes again. <laughs> yeah, so what they, the data showed that 88% of the folks that were having severe symptoms had at least one pre-existing chronic disease. And I was just like, their, their bodies, this, this virus appears to have a tropism towards lung tissue, but we knew now we know it's more epithelial, more cardiovascular, but basically it's a hyperinflammatory triggering condition. And I want folks to realize that the virus doesn't do it itself. It's your body's response to the virus. Your body creates the inflammation. A virus can't create inflammation. Mm. A virus is in an, it's not even alive necessarily. It's such a weird thing. We can get into that maybe, but you know what it does is your body, it begins to basically, the quote infection is the virus taking control of your cellular machinery and then printing out copies of itself, printing out copies of infected cells. Mm. It's really fascinating. Matrix vibes. Yeah, yeah. Agent Mr. Smith vibes. Yeah, Agent Smith, yeah. <laughs> Mr. Anderson. Yes. <laughs> yes. There you go. And so it's setting off this immune response where your, your system is, it knows like, hey, there's this abnormality mm -hmm. taking place, ascending the guns, and that's where the inflammation comes from. And so we get into this place, is the inflammation controlled? Is it appropriate? Or do we have this newly dubbed cytokine storm taking place, mm. right? Or because is it, inflammation is good, is like a yeah. good sign. Yeah, that, without inflammation, we die. Right, mm. okay. But okay. chronic is but bad. chronic is bad. Yes, if it's, if it's chronic and even in the moment, it can be an acute inflammation that goes too far. Got it. Right. Okay. But, or it can under respond. Right. So we want to look towards like, what are some immunomodulators? Maybe we can circle back to that as well. Mm -hmm. So, with that said, I know that, okay, obesity, if we're in a state of obesity, this is a pre inflamed state. Like, mm -hmm. literally, your fat cells, which we think, again, going back to what we were originally talking about, if we're targeting these fat cells, we want to burn fat, we want to kill the fat. That's not how it really works because your fat cells, like when you're born, you have a certain amount of fat cells. They just get filled with contents or the contents get emptied, right? And so as the contents of the cell and a fat cell can literally have like a thousand times its size, it can grow. It's crazy what, it's so intelligent and incredible. But as that fat cell begins to contain a lot of storage, there's a, an immune signal that takes place. And basically, it's signaling to your body that you're infected. Like your fat cells are sending off this data as if you're infected. And so it's creating this pre-inflamed state. And then this inf inflammatory-driven condition hits you. What do you mm. think is going to happen? Mm -hmm. You know, this is very basic stuff. So I saw the data and I was like, we're in trouble here. We're here? We are the sickest nation in the history of the world. Like, and so I just was just like, okay, this is our time. This is our moment. We've all been training for this, people. This is our mm -hmm. moment. We've got to focus on community wellness. We've got to get our citizens healthier. And so I, I focused on that, shared the early evidence, and I saw something interesting happen I've never seen before. And at that time, 19 years in this field, there was this extreme cognitive dissonance. There was this shift that took place where folks immediately 
allowed a certain narrative to integrate and they start to see the world very differently. Where this logical, applicable data, like we've got thousands of thousands of peer-reviewed studies on here's some things that we can do to actually have an appropriate immune response to fortify your natural killer cells, which the FDA even was working to fast track a drug targeting our NK cells because they're so effective at killing SARS-CoV-2 infected cells. All these things that we already have, but now it's just like, if you don't separate, you're going to die. If you don't shut your business down, if you, if you don't wear a mask, whatever the case might be, we started doing all these new things we've never done before. Mm. And I was just like, what? okay, that's okay. We can have those things, but we've got to do these, these things we know work. We know these things work. Why are we not talking about these things? And so, you know, friends and colleagues, friends and colleagues, you know, people that I've supported that I love, they were like, you know, same, they were like, you're absolutely right, Sean, because I knew obesity was going to be the big issue. Mm-hmm. They're like, you're absolutely right, Sean. Unfortunately, we can't get people healthier overnight, right? This was the story. And now here we are almost two years later. And they're, they're still not talking about this. Mm-hmm. And so what I did was seeing that this cognitive dissonance was taking place. And by the way, so just to be clear, the CDC published a report. As of this recording, it was last month. And it was data from over 800 U.S. hospitals. So as of this recording, it was two months ago. They took the data from over 800 U.S. hospitals, over 540,000 COVID-19 patients. And they found that the number one risk factor for death from COVID was obesity. I was fucking right. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to be right. It's just obvious. Mm-hmm. The number one risk factor. The second leading risk factor though, which is something I immediately, I was like, okay, this, this cognitive dissonance is, why would, why would this break happen in our psychology? It's because we're afraid. Mm-hmm. And we were just being inundated with irrational fear, not, we can have safety. We can be logical because we know this about like yelling fire, you know, mm-hmm. when, when, the, when something is on fire and creating a riot basically, but it's happening psychologically for people. And so I was looking at what is, what is the impact of rampant fear having on the immune system? Because I know this is what I've been studying. A big part of my work the last decade has been psychoneuroimmunology and psychoneuroendocrinology. Mm-hmm. And so knowing how fear can literally destroy your immune system. And so I sought out other voices as well, because I'm this cool science guy, you know, like I want to make sure I bring in a multitude of voices. And so I went to leading cell biologist, the term epigenetics that a lot of people have heard. He's the guy who impressed it upon our culture, Dr. Bruce Lipton. He's the guy. I got him, sat down with him. And I asked him to talk about the biology of fear. How does this actually influence our immune system? And man, he broke it down, you know. In in short, we'll just say this immediate cortisol response is good. Like we actually get an immune boost if it's a short-term fear, right? In case you've got to heal like a cut or something because your psychology is like prepared for some kind of external intrusion. That's what Mm -hmm. our fear response is for, is for handling fight or flight right? Today, we're not facing off against pandas in the wild. I don't know if anybody's ever faced a panda in the wild. <laughs> That'd be like, <laughs> nice. That'd be great. You know, wild bears or, yes. you know, everybody uses saber-toothed tiger. I want to do something different. But we don't face <laughs> off on those type of scenarios anymore. So mm-hmm. we have a lot of 
creature comforts now. So we have time to manufacture fear. Yes. And your brain and biology does not know the difference. You could look at any prestigious uh, neuroscientist. Your brain and biology does not know the difference between an imagined fear and a real occurrence. An imagined scenario and a real occurrence. And so if we're perpetually in fear, what happens with this abnormal, again, cortisol is not bad. Inflammation is not bad. It's how it's produced and when it's produced, how often. So if we're constantly secreting these stress hormones, cortisol and the like, um, epinephrine, norepinephrine, if these things get imbalanced, the immune system, just the energy required to run those things to keep you in that fight or flight state, the, the, the energy required for your immune system becomes a lower tier and it just starts to lose function rapidly. And so I was pointing this out because I knew, I absolutely knew with every fiber of my being based on the data that all of this fear we're being inundated with is going to lead to worse health outcomes. People are going to be sicker. People, more people are going to die. If you believe that this infection, if you get it, it is going to kill you. It has a much higher probability of killing you. So I knew this was the case. Now, here's what the, what the CDC's report found. The number one risk factor for death from COVID, and you got to put this in the show notes for everybody, seeing mm-hmm. is believing. It's on the CDC site as mm-hmm. if people are actually are going and looking at it. Mm-hmm. The number one risk factor for death from COVID is obesity. The second leading risk factor for death from COVID is anxiety and fear-related disorders. On the CDC website. Wow. And I just can't make this stuff up. Mm-hmm. I knew that these were our two big issues. And then I think about the media who's been complicit in taking people's lives by inundating them with irrational fear. Right? Mm-hmm. So there's no context to it. Mm-hmm. For their it, benefit too. Exactly. And we have this, I don't know if you guys saw, I've posted it many times, but the CNN director, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Charlie Chester, you didn't mm-hmm. see this? So, and this is no knock against any particular news network. Yeah. I'm, I'm not a fan of any of them. Mm-hmm. Um, because of these tactics, they're all yes. doing the same thing, yes. which is not really news anymore. It's, it's, a, it's a slant. Mm-hmm. It's a certain narrative. And the crazy thing is all of these media companies are funded by the same people. Mm-hmm. It's nuts, but it's they nuts. know that this audience has this certain narrative. And so it's really just like sports center. Mm-hmm. Like they're using all of these different analogies. Mm-hmm. It's entertainment, mm-hmm. you know, but Charlie Chester, the technical director at CNN, was caught on a hot mic. You know, this little, this news organization did this rogue gorilla thing, hidden camera. And he's one step under the director of the channel. And, and if you want, you guys, you could put the link to this as well. Mm-hmm. Again, seeing is mm-hmm. believing. Mm-hmm. And what happened was, and this is the beautiful part. And we, I talked about this, you know, my, my friend and mentor, Michael Beckwith shared with me, these things can happen today. If they happened 20 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, no one would ever know. Today, mm-hmm. With technology and the interconnection of us, we can find out the lie the same day, or we can find out the truth the same day, yes. like mm-hmm. the, within the, maybe the same hour. And so the, the person asked him, and I know that this, oh, I actually, I saw that they follow me, but the news outlet, I knew that they knew me because of the question that she asked. So she, number one, asked, why do you have this death toll ticker on your news channel all the time? And for me, I don't watch the news. I was at my neighbor's house and I saw it in the background and I thought it was like the stock ticker, right? And then like it, I caught it and I was like, like, these are people. This mm-hmm. is human lives that we have going as a death toll. That's not okay, mm-hmm. right? And so, and he, he said, uh, 
COVID is, is gangbusters for ratings. And he said, sometimes I see the number and I feel like we need to get it higher. Like, why isn't it higher? And then he said, I know that that's wrong. That's really messed up that I'm thinking that way. But it's just the way that this system has been built. And so she asked him, well, why don't you guys have a, a survival ticker mm-hmm. and show the, you know, people throw these numbers around, but I'm just giving a very blanket number, 99% folks being okay or surviving, whatever the case might be. Why aren't you showing that? And he thought about it for a second. He said, because that's not scary. And then he said the words that we hear. He said, if it bleeds, it leads. And she was just being all like, oh, that's cute. I like that, you know? But she was just like egging him on to say more. And he says, as a matter of fact, we inundate the audience with so much fear, we actually reserve a segment at the end called the good stuff. And he said, it's sort of like the ice cream at the end of the pain, at the suffering, you know, just to let you know that everything's going to be okay. Then we hit you with more fear again in the next hour. You know, so this is what the medium is that we're existing in. And he also said that we only bring on people that that take the bait or that are going to have our narrative. And if they don't, we just make fun of them. My face. I know. If you're on YouTube and you're looking at my face. (laughs) Yeah. How maniacal is that? Yeah. That's maniacal. My thing too is like, I thought we're maybe, and I'm maybe in my own world, but it's like, I think if you come to someone and you're like, hey, we're on the same page that the media is funded by your attention and your fear. I think most people would be like, yeah, I I agree with that. And then you're like, hey, you know, the government lobbyists are in bed with big pharma and big pharma is like one of the most corrupt spaces in the world. And, And they'd be like, yeah, totally. Hey, you know, but, and then it's like when we're trying to put things together or we're like, hey, our healthcare system, our food care system is fucked. You know, the way that it's structured right now in the United States isn't supporting people and being well. The school system for med students isn't supporting them and being their best selves. Like the pharmaceutical is like in bed. It's like, we're all like, yes, totally. I think we're all on that page. But then when you put it together, it's like too much for people. Or it's like when, when you're kind of making the connection that they're all sort of participating in this thing. And I'm not saying it's like a conspiracy or a coup, but what I'm saying is that it's all sort of touching each other to provide and create this environment that we're currently in where we are inundated with fear. We are inundated with this information that is skewed in a way to keep us complicit, to keep us just continuing this sort of trajectory that's leading us further from health. And so your process with this, I think that's a really powerful example that you shared. Before COVID happened, before this sort of research you were doing, were you like you probably being in the health space were like, okay, I'm aware that these systems are corrupt, but has it been hard for you to even take to understand how corrupt it really is? <laughs> I mean, I've seen things in a, in a new light yeah. recently. Of course, I've, I've been aware of these systems, but I also, I just believe that, and this is still a rational perspective, even though it might not sound all that bright, but I really do believe that people are good. Yes, 100%. You know, I believe that most people are really, really good mm-hmm. and they're trying to do yes. the right thing. And so when we talk about even this Charlie Chester, like he knows, even as he's saying it, you could yeah. see that there's some remorse there in what he's saying. And what he's doing, what he's thinking is, we're still trying to drive a healthier conversation, which is our political, the person that we're backing is going to be better for the country or whatever yeah. the case might be. It's still some kind of altruism, but it can be twisted. Mm-hmm. And we talked about this before we got started, where we see a situation where 
somebody compromises one time and it opens the door, mm. right? A political figure. And so, for example, if we're talking about the influence of pharmaceutical companies in 2020, two thirds of Congress received a check from pharmaceutical companies. Like, it's not a joke. They're funded by them. Once you take that money, you, you have to do a faith. Something's going to happen. But they're just like, I'm trying to win this so that I can help change and make yes. change in my community, right? But not understanding what is this built on? And so just to share what this is built on, because our solution, if we, I started off by sharing some of the statistics on how sick we are. Why are we not getting better? You know, we have, we're, we're also the most drug taking culture mm-hmm. in the world, in the history of humanity. We've got all the drugs. About 70% of our citizens are taking pharmaceutical drugs, but something is not working. Why is that? Well, <laughs> this is kind of messed up, but the, the, the EJS Center for Ethics at Harvard University did a, a meta-analysis looking at all these different databases because you can't just go to the CDC side or the FDA and find this data, but they affirm that 200,000 Americans die every year from pharmaceutical drugs, right? Every year, 200,000. And that's wow. the low end of the spectrum. But, and they also noted in their study, these are, this is Harvard. Mm-hmm. These are the smart guys. Yes. They're not trying to just be out here making trouble for nothing. But then this is just another affirmation. There's many other data points that have come to this conclusion, but they noted that the FDA does not acknowledge this and only accounts for a small percentage of these deaths. And so what's happening here is that we have a system of medicine and health that is so centered on pharmacology and the treatment of symptoms of disease. And so, for example, there was a time span when people were coming into my office and like probably 70% of people, maybe even 80%, probably 70% of people were on a statin. Like it was just everybody was on one. What's that Um, again? A statin is a cholesterol producing medication. And so I was just like, I was seeing this wave happen where it went from like, you know, maybe two out of 10 to like, it just like happened so quickly. And it's because it was seemed to be some very inert thing. Like it's just going to help to keep your cholesterol in check. The question is, what does cholesterol do in your body? And what happens when we target this thing superficially, right? So mm. now here's, I'm just going to give the snapshot. I had this data back then. Now it's easily accessible, but you can just go to Dr. Google and look it up. But folks on a statin have a 30% increased incidence of developing diabetes, right? So we're having this issue over here and we're signaling or starting the fire for another issue and we're not addressing the root cause, right? And so, and the question is, for example, a lot of folks coming in where they they had heart disease, high blood pressure, hypertension, lisinopril is another drug that was often prescribed. And so what it's doing is superficially lowering the blood pressure. But the question is, what is elevating their blood pressure Mm -hmm. to this dangerous place in the first place? Which could be their diet, which the Journal of the American Medical Association said poor diet is the number one cause of heart disease. Mm -hmm. Could be their diet and their bodies revolting. I shared that study about processed foods creating this metabolic mess. And so that could be the issue. It could be sleep deprivation is one of the fastest ways to increase your insulin resistance, increase your blood pressure. It could be stress. Obviously, we know we could just be stressed out in our blood pressure. We can go into hypertension, mm-hmm. right? And a myriad of other factors that it could be. 
lack of movement. Mm. Your body's just working harder trying to move blood through your body because you're sedentary. We're the most sedentary culture in the history of the world, right? So these are all the things your body is telling you and it's giving this symptom of high blood pressure, hypertension. It's giving you this symptom like, hey, what you're, the way that you're living, the, what you're doing right now, your inputs, your exposures, I, I don't like this. To get me back to homeostasis, you have to change. Mm. Instead, here's a drug for that. We'll just mask the symptom where your body's like, it's like sending off an alarm inside of you. And what happens is we essentially mute the alarm, mm -hmm. but the alarm is still going off. And so what the body does is it pops up another alarm over here, right? In the form of a quote side effect, but it's not a side effect. It's a direct effect of ignoring the first thing. Mm. So this is what our system of healthcare is built on, unfortunately. And pharmaceutical drugs definitely have, have their place and they can be life-saving mm. for sure. And also, especially in acute instances, but for the things that actually kill most of us, these chronic diseases, lifestyle-related chronic diseases, it is, a, it is an absolute, number one, it's killing hundreds of thousands of Americans every year themselves, the, the, the drugs directly. But secondly, we're not actually helping people because we're giving them these drugs and how many more millions are dying from heart disease and diabetes. Did you know that the drugs we take to manage period cramps were invented in the 1950s and exclusively tested on men? <laughs> what? It's literally outrageous that there hasn't been more innovation when it comes to periods. Deloon is changing that with dietitian formulated solutions that relieve our symptoms while actually supporting cycle health. Because our cycles affect every aspect of our wellness, period pain, mood, sleep, skin, metabolism, energy, and more. I, I don't know about you, but you know, some some months I'm like, oh my gosh, like everything has to stop, but it really can't <laughs> because I'm experiencing you know, really bad cramps or headaches, fatigue, you, bloating, you name it. I've really tried a lot of things. And while I think I've gotten most of my symptoms under control, it doesn't mean they still don't happen and kind of disrupt my flow. So I was really excited to find Deloon and recommend it to a lot of my friends and they have been absolutely loving it. I was talking to a friend the other day that experienced like really, really bad periods, cramps and just all these symptoms. And she was so happy uh, to try Deloon. She's noticed that her symptoms have subsided. They don't last as long. They're not as intense and she can really just be in her life, which is really nice. So Deloon Nutritional Solutions are dietitian formulated to work with your cycle health, not against it. It'll help you all month long while also relieving your cramps and PMS during your period. Deloon creates effective drug-free supplements for period cramps, PMS, and optimal cycle health. So you can get the relief you need naturally, which I'm all about, and start feeling like your best self. So if you want high potency, fast acting supplements for your period cramps, PMS, and really getting your cycle health in its prime top condition, like 92% of their customers report that relief, try Deloon. 
Leave bad periods behind and start the new year off with 23% off. Go to cyclehealth.com slash almost 30 and use the code almost 30 to get 23% off plus free shipping. If Deloon isn't the right match for you, your money back is guaranteed. That's cyclehealth.com slash almost 30 and use the code almost 30 to get 23% off plus free shipping. The people in government or the people in the medical industry and the pharmaceutical, like, their intention is usually good. Like their intention is to prescribe yeah. something that they believe will help people and does help people in a lot of cases. And a lot of times within government, within the news, they're like, we'll take this funding because what we believe we could do would be helpful for people. And I think that's just really important because I think that's where people get a little turned off where they're like, oh, where they kind of get worried that they think everyone's out to get them or going against them. Mm -hmm. So it's that reminder that like every person has that aspect of them that could potentially have a shaky value foundation that could be swayed by money out of fear or lack or all these things. And I think I'm really glad that you brought that Mm -hmm. through because I want to make sure that that's like solidified for people. Yeah. I mean, there's so many good people that are in, you know, Johnson and Johnson yeah, and course. Pfizer and Merck. Yeah. They're getting into it. Just today, actually, I just released an interview that I did with a doctor of pharmacy mm-hmm. who, again, from the inside, she also worked alongside the CDC in her pharmacological role. She, because of what she saw early on in her education, you know, she knows that, okay, we've got all these different drugs for these different symptoms, but she, a red flag went off for her. Mm-hmm. When she saw every, she she was like, she reiterated every day, I got an email on another drug being recalled. Every every day of her career. And so one day she was just like, how are they getting approved if they keep getting recalled for safety issues? What, why isn't anybody talking about this? And so, you know, one of the things that she shared was, of course, like she started to see some of the alarming data with folks. And again, she got into it to help people, Mm -hmm. but she just was able to see like, this is really about she would go to these conferences and like there's a circle and the patient is in the middle. It's patient centric. It's all about the patient. And then these other things are the bubbles outside. But really she was just like, the pharmaceutical industry is in the center because mm-hmm. they're making so much money. And what they're teaching physicians to do is sharing some of this data on these drugs for filling the blank issues, incentivizing them mm-hmm. and getting them to work on mm-hmm. compliance for themselves and for their patients versus real healthcare, real education. And so- When you say compliance, what do you mean? To, to say yes, yeah. to say yes mm-hmm. to prescribing the drug and to say yes to, to taking the drug, yeah. mm-hmm. right? And so being able to, we have, we, we, again, we have these red flags that go off, yeah. but to be able to silence those things before they even come up, mm-hmm. right? How can we get to the patient faster to get this drug in their hand for their own good? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so she shared that, but also this points to something that a lot of folks don't, don't know about. Again, she worked with this, the CDC. She had that direct interaction, but then we have the FDA as well, the Food and Drug Administration, which this is such a contentious thing today as well. But the, the truth is the, our FDA, who's responsible for determining, because again, if we've got all these drug recalls happening, how the fuck are they getting approved in the first place? It's very simple. A couple of decades ago, a shift took place and it was under the guise of public good to be able to get needed drugs to the public faster. And the FDA was like, hey, we don't have enough people. We don't have enough resources. So they opened up something called user fees, 
where pharmaceutical companies were now able to pay the FDA for faster approvals and faster reviews of their drugs. Today, it's grown into a multi-billion dollar income for the FDA from pharmaceutical companies. I'm saying billions. They receive billions with a B in funding from drug companies. Our FDA is funded. 75% of their scientific review board is from pharmaceutical companies. Guess what's happened? The rates of approval have skyrocketed. And also some of the most dangerous drugs in our history have come out since, like the opioid epidemic, Mm -hmm. which Johnson & Johnson was just ordered to pay part of a $26 billion lawsuit because of their contribution to this opioid epidemic, which has killed about a million Americans uh, since 2000. Mm. You know, it's crazy again, like, but nobody's talking about that right now. It's so crazy. That's what I think is weird too, is like a few years ago before COVID happened, you'd be like, you'd talk about the opioid epidemic and you'd be like, it's the pharmaceuticals, you know, the data's there, the the information is there about how corrupt the pharmaceutical industry is, you know, and we can see as a case study with the opioid epidemic, but now it's like, we kind of forgot about that mm-hmm. in this and we're like, okay, now we trust sort of what's going on. And I'm, I'm curious about like the the moral play. Because uh-huh. like I, I think that's kind of the shift or the difference for me between yeah. how people would react years ago to those facts about the opioid epidemic and to now with COVID, there is in the media like this moral play yes. of you are a good person, a good citizen, if you comply with this or do this, even though there are kind of these like, just a little bit of alarm bells going off like, huh? that was quick or, huh, Mm -hmm. like maybe this isn't right for my body right now. Or, you know, I have antibodies or I trust natural immunity or whatever it is. It's like, there is a moral play that just kind of blinds people and skews the way that they are perhaps questioning these bigger companies. Have... Can you kind of expand upon that in your experience, you know, kind of going through the data and then also talking to real people in your audience about, you know, kind of their compass? Mm -hmm. Because I think a lot of people feel a responsibility to do one thing over the other. Yeah. Um, Again, I I believe most people are good. And Mm -hmm. we also believe that we are sovereign. Even when we are being manipulated, that's when you don't don't know it's manipulation, Mm -hmm. you know? And... It's much easier to manipulate someone when you're afraid. Yes. When you're not in a, when you're not in a balanced headspace, mm-hmm. it's much. You're going to be more reactive. And once you invest in a certain way of thinking, it's much. It's it becomes harder and harder and harder to step away from that form of thinking. And this is what we see in our healthcare system, because again, this is our best and brightest. And again, I had a, I had a, I had certain events take place that broke that from me, that response to think that I've got it all figured out. The crazy thing is when you look at how you're wrong proactively, you end up being right a lot more, you Mm. know? And so, but people are really, they're so wholeheartedly believing in their narrative, but it's coming from the same people that we all agreed upon are industries that are corrupt, that thrive on manipulation and fear. So many people just like, you know, I don't trust the news. They are getting their information from the news. Like that's where they're getting their information from. And they're, at the same time, they'll literally be like, I don't trust the news. And the news, the trust of the news based on the data is lower than it's ever been. But people are watching it more than ever. Mm-hmm. What? 
there's something broken here. There's something mm -hmm. that's not working accurately. And it's because the fear will drive you to check it out. The fear is going to keep you like, I, I need to be informed. But you're not informed, you're inundated. You're, you're being manipulated. You can't help it because of the state that, you, that you're in. So we were already preconditioned to be so compliant and not to question things. With our education system, mm -hmm. for example, mm. we have an education system that unfortunately, uh, this is tough to talk about because I've had the opportunity to work with so many kids over the years, mm -hmm. but we have an education system that is based on very rudimentary things. Like it's not really yes. based on applicable things for our reality. Yes. It's not based on you as a human being. It's based on a certain system and being good at this system. Yes. And if you're not good at the system, you're a bad student. Yes. If you don't want to sit down and listen and do everything that you're told, you're not compliant. We got drugs for that. And so we are also the, the, the nation that gives more pharmaceutical drugs to our children than any nation in history by far. That's a problem. Mm -hmm. Psychoactive drugs for children. And then we see higher rates for these kids. Once they cycle out of fill in the blank with illicit drugs, with suicide, with depression, whatever the case might be. These things that we're experiencing right now are not an accident. All right. And again, that's another one of those figures that is just dramatically increased in the last couple of decades is suicide for children and adolescents. Something is off, mm -hmm. you know? So our education system is teaching some brilliant, beautiful children that they're not, they're not good enough unless you comply, right? So, you know, and again, this isn't about being disrespectful and like, you know, mm -hmm. but it's just about the nature of a child to explore, to move, to be creative, these things are silenced very early on. Like kindergarten, you can use the big crayons and shit and make some, you know, but eventually they're like, you can't make the duck purple. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like it all becomes yes. like, if you don't Color do it this way. Color in the lines. Yes. Yeah, you know? And so, because again, like we can express ourselves here and then suddenly here, this is the right answer or wrong answer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You understand? Like yeah. this is the way that we are trained from an early age. So again, we're conditioned for years to be compliant. We're conditioned for years with our state of health. We're not mentally well. So a great example of this is, <laughs> I'll share two. So one of them was done by researchers at The Ohio State University. They wanted to find out how abnormal blood sugar can affect compassion between a couple. Mm. All right? Mm. So... And this has a lot to do with our psychology as well. Like if you're irritated with somebody, that's a psychological experience. And it's also physiological, like your body, your biology feels it too. And so they had glucose measurements, continuous glucose measurements to see what would happen when somebody's blood sugar is abnormal. And so what they found, bottom line with the data, they consistently found that when folks' blood sugar was lower, they were, less, they were more aggressive towards their partner and less likely to resolve conflicts. That's, that's easy. Other thing. I'm like, that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. Like, but we know this stuff, but we really don't yes. get it. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like, yes. mm -hmm. And so having that bit of data, like what type of person is showing up in that conversation? You know, are you, are you physiologically okay to even have a conversation? Now, the other one is, this was done with the population of, of prison inmates. 
And they want to find out how nutrition can affect their behavior, specifically aggression Mm -hmm. and violence. And so what they did was they gave one of the groups just basic stuff. This isn't even the good stuff, but just increase micronutrients, vitamins, minerals, essential fatty acids, essential fatty acids, which are critical for cognitive function. And then they gave another group of inmates a, a placebo. Four months later, they look at the data, they look at the behavior, they look at their experience. The folks who had the increase in their nutrition intake had about a 40% reduction in behavioral offenses and a 30% reduction in violent offenses just by changing their nutrition. Mm, wow. Like, and the thing was, this is, if you don't have a context for how remarkable this is, researchers didn't believe it. A bunch of researchers were rejecting the data because they're just like, all the therapy, all the therapies that we have, all the interventions, nothing has gotten close to a 30% reduction in violence. Like, this, this can't be. So they repeated it. So the first one was done by researchers at Oxford. The second one was published in the journal Aggressive Behavior, which there's journals for everything. Mm. And so they repeated it and got essentially the same results with another group of inmates. Just by giving them better nutrition, they became essentially better people. Now, let me be clear. They also tested personality. Like nothing changed. They couldn't figure out what it was. Like, what is this food doing that's making this happen? And unless they are able to look at it through this lens, which I'm looking at it through the lens of a neuroscientist from this, from, for this particular thing, what's happening in the brain when they're deficient in magnesium, when they're deficient in essential fatty acids, the prefrontal cortex, the part of your brain responsible for social control, for distinguishing between right and wrong, for forethought, for decision-making, that part of the brain starts to really lose function. And more primitive parts of the brain take over because the brain is stressed. So your amygdala is, we call it an amygdala hijack. And this part of the brain is very emotional. It's more concerned about survival of self. And the, 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 basically the adult leaves the room. The rationality is mm-hmm. gone. You know, our, our dramatically can decline. So this is what we're seeing today where we have very, very smart people who are using their intelligence to rationalize illogical things because they're driven by, it's an emotional response first. And then once you step into it, you got to keep going. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to admit when you're wrong, if you, especially if you haven't exercised that, that muscle. So That's what I was thinking about. I was like thinking, talking to a friend who's like a leader in the space. And I was like, how can we support people in the next couple of years with being okay with being wrong? <laughs> And this is supporting myself and being wrong too. Like I'm wrong all the time, but it's like, I think that's a thing that's missing is like, I think people dig their heels in because it's so scary to be wrong. Because if you're wrong about something, it's like, what else are you wrong about? And I think that's what happened in like a little bit of my awakening where you're like, okay, I'm wrong about this. I was wrong about this. I was wrong about this. You know, you just kind of go down the the gamut of everything you're wrong about. And it can be scary for people to feel like they're wrong about something that they've felt so passionately and and fervorous about. It's like losing yeah. your identity when you feel yes. like you're wrong. Yes. Or you realize you're wrong. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it's scary. You know, you're like, 
Yeah, I just laugh. I laugh at some of the things I used to think and some of the, the ways I used to <laughs> express and be. But it is kind of weird. You're like, oh, what? I was so sure. It kind of makes yeah. you lose trust in yourself. Mm. You're like, I was so sure. Yeah. How was I so sure? And now I'm not. Mm. It's a little scary and disorienting. Yeah. Or I guess the last thing I want to say about this too is like, I just want to kind of reiterate too, coming from the point of like caring about people and like loving people and being people that want the best for people and people that want healthy people that are happy, that are able to have solutions that are actually more simple than we think. And I guess the last thing I want to drive home from and get here from you is about like, just coming back home to the point of like, we share all this information because we care about providing different perspectives and opinions, not because we're wanting to shame or blame people or make them feel bad or gotcha anyone mm-hmm. or anything like that. So can you just talk a little bit about like the overall energy that you want to bring through when you're kind of sharing these studies and information and how it's really deeply rooted in like an intense care for the direction that we're going as a society? Yeah. So this is, uh, you guys are so awesome. <laughs> this is, it has to be, there's a lot of superficial compassion taking yes. place. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of overnight health experts, you know, like this is health, do this thing and, you know, I'm healthy or I'm making other people healthy. And so what's happening is there's a lot of, even with the research and understanding things, there's a lot of skimming. There's a lot of like window shopping. Mm-hmm. People aren't really utilizing our greatest capacity, something that our souls are driven towards, which is discovery and learning. And we're putting that discovery and learning into the real housewives. I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm sorry. Or, you know, into Squid Game, into, you know, whatever the case might be. We're in the golden age of television. I think all this stuff is great. However, we're outsourcing our exploration. We're outsourcing Mm. our adventure. We're outsourcing our curiosity. Mm. And if you just take a little bit of that back and invest it in any of these subjects, just having that childlike nature and wanting to discover and go and not just look at the headlines or to skim or to window shop, but really dig in, get uncomfortable and really look into something and, and have the audacity to look at it from multiple perspectives. Mm-hmm. You have that capacity to do it. Mm-hmm. And so this is real compassion is when you can actually understand that that other person who has the total, seemingly total opposite belief, but they just want to be happy. Mm-hmm. They want to be healthy. They want to mm-hmm. protect their family. And understand that that's, they're operating from that place. They're not stupid. They're not you know, ignorant. They're not trying. They don't want to hurt people. Mm-hmm. When we start allowing these narratives to be put out there, that's when it really gets even more divisive. You know? So whatever, whatever you believe right now, we've got to understand at the core, most people are trying to help people. Most people are trying to be healthy and do the right thing. Their perception of how to get there might not be accurate based on logic. And this is where I kind of come in as just like, let's, let's just be on, let's take a look at this. See, is this going good? Like, let's actually just take an honest, open perspective and look at the state of affairs. Mm-hmm. Is any of this shit working? Mm-hmm. And I think that pretty much every, even remotely logical human being could be like, yeah, something's not right here. Like something is off. Mm-hmm. And I would also implore people to listen to your heart. Really, your intuition. Oh my goodness. I mean, my wife is 
she's right all the time. You know, even when she's wrong, she's still right. Like, it's still like very close. <laughs> you know, whenever I listen to her, like, I mean, she just knows, man, you know, mm-hmm. but she's also tuned into that. And, you know, so it's the greatest gift that you have, mm-hmm. especially a woman's intuition, mm-hmm. like really listening to your gut. But it's more difficult when you're inundated with this stuff out here, when you're inundated and so invested in the lives of other people mm-hmm. through the screen or when you're so invested and inundated, your gut, if, if your gut isn't healthy, that's another very visceral thing, right? So we know like most of our serotonin is in our gut. So like this feel good neurotransmitter helping to keep us feeling more balanced in a quote, good mood. What if we got some, you know, some stuff that doesn't jive with our system in there, it's going to kind of suppress that access. You know, we know this gut brain connection is a real, real thing. You know, the vagus nerve, that data going back and forth, that's just one of these super highways connecting it. So seeking to take back control of your thinking right now and leading with compassion when other people are saying it or proposing what their compassion is, let's, let's utilize true compassion, which is let me actually look at things from the other person's perspective. Mm-hmm. This does not mean that you're not going to get upset. This does not mean that you're not going to be angry. You're not going to be sad. You're not going to be afraid. These are all valid and healthy human emotions. We just don't want any of these emotions to take control of our lives because it's going to pull us out of balance. You know, So utilizing our emotions, listening to them, asking what, it, what is this fear trying to tell me? You know, What mm-hmm. is this... What is this hurt from my family member who doesn't want to see me because I don't agree with them? What, what is this trying to teach me, right? So, but to be able to, to answer these questions, to sit and to allow yourself that access, we've got to unplug from the other stuff, mm-hmm. you know? And yeah. so I, I hope that that's helpful. Yeah, very. I love this. I w- it's about raising kids, but they say that active to- active toys, they're talking about toys. They're like active toys make a passive mind and passive toys make an active mind. So it's like giving a kid a box that creates an active mind because then they're playing in the box. But if you give them like Fortnite, mm-hmm. they're going to become passive because they're watching all that and it's already doing all the imagination for them. So it's even applicable to us as adults and as humans. It's like when we're just inundated with these like very active TV shows, video games, music, podcasts, you know, all this kind of stuff, it creates this like passive environment for us to exist rather than using like our imagination or our compassion muscle. But yeah, thank you for sharing mm-hmm. that. That was beautiful. Mm-hmm. And no wonder, you know, I feel like I, and I, I feel like my prayer for, myself and others too, is like that we become so in tune with the nuance of what's affecting us. So it's like noticing that on a day when I'm on my phone a lot, mm-hmm. maybe the TV's on a lot, maybe we're on Zoom calls a ton, that I'm feeling different and why. And just really being so present to the feeling in our bodies and our hearts and uh, that we can kind of get curious about what could possibly feel better. And I, I just wanted to touch on too, like this need or this want to be accepted. And and I think that's so much of what drives defensiveness these days, where if someone were to like just question something and we've seen it, you know, I'm not saying anything new, that you might be ostracized from the group from mm-hmm. the family, from the community, from yeah. fill in the blank. And it's so scary. So I just have a lot of compassion for people who feel unsafe in that way. 
Last question. What, what have you learned or even just fortified for yourself as a human being and even more so as like a father, because I think mm. a lot about parents in these times um, with everything that we've all gone through collectively, but then also from your unique perspective and access to or hunger for the data and really getting curious about that. What has either changed or been just cemented as a father raising kids? Wow. You know, I just recently looked at what it is. I, until now, I never really realized how strong I am. Mm. You know, I, I never really looked at it. I'm just being myself. And I've never been, I've never had so much introspection on the things that I've overcome. Mm. You know, I've just been busy doing the things, you know. And so certain people, you know, every day I get these messages, you know, thank you for, you know, sharing, speaking up. You're so courageous. And I'm just like, huh? Like, this is, this is not hard. This is not, I've been through way, way more mm. difficult things than this. And so for me, I, I really, for the first time in my life, I understand how strong I am. Like, mm. I, am, I am very, very capable. And I wel- because of that, like, I welcome more. I like, I want to give me whatever, give me whatever obstacle, mm-hmm. because I'll find a way. I always do. And everybody listening, the same thing. Everything you've been through, you've made it. Because of our society, it pulls us away from our inner knowing. And sometimes it can be hidden away. But right now, you know, for me, and especially, you know, with my kids, like, this is a big reason why, to be honest, why I'm doing this work at such a passionate level. It's because I'm really thinking about the children, not just my kids, but because I come from an environment where, you know, when I was, I was four years old, I was just a, I was a baby, you know, I was a little kid. And, you know, the kid next door, he was a little bit older. And, you know, we lived in not the best conditions. Like we lived in a pretty, Mm. you could die. You know what I mean? And we kept getting into these little scuffles like boys do. But my mother and his his mother and another family member, they thought it would be a good idea to make us fight each other. You know, I was just a baby. I was four years old. And I distinctly remember like, why is my mom making me do this? I don't want to do this. And within a half, half a second, he pushed me into the corner of a wall and like I have this big scar on the back of my head to this day. And from that moment, I was taught like you solve your problems through violence. And I wanted to make my mother proud. And so I got him back and I got many more back mm-hmm. to the degree I was kicked out of high school for an entire year. I graduated in three years of high school not because I'm exceptionally smart, which it was pretty easy to be honest. But <laughs> I, at the time when I got kicked out, I was on student advisory. I was in this new program. I was a teenage health consultant is what it was called. I was in the first uh, college credit program. It's called En-ROADS with St. Louis University. The list goes on and on. Scholar, athlete, all the things. I got into a fight. It didn't matter. It kicked me out for a year, which was unheard of. I was in this so-called uh, DSEG program bus from the inner city to the quote, good schools. And they just made an example out of me. Like it didn't matter how good you are. And so same thing, you would think I'd get my act together once I got to college. I I got kicked out of college for fighting, you know? And I wouldn't, like, I don't want to hurt anybody. 
you know? Mm-hmm. So I grew up in these conditions and I know what it's like for these children. Like it, it is a minor miracle that I'm here with you guys today. You know, I, I'm from Ferguson. Most of my years on this planet, I lived in Ferguson and Florissant, Missouri, mm-hmm. which has become kind of infamous. And so mm-hmm. I'm driving into the university, like trying to get around, you know, getting pulled over and like all these things. Like I had all these continuous obstacles. People, you know, loved ones getting murdered. And, you know, on like my, my stepfather is in an adult living facility right now because of crack. Like he can't even take care of himself. Mm-hmm. These are all the things. And I just barely sidestepped each and every one of them. And the reason why is because I'm strong as fuck. And I knew that I'm going to be better than this environment. My stepfather was strong as fuck. He just didn't know mm-hmm. because of the conditions around him told him other than. He's such a beautiful soul. Like he's such a good person, but none of that matters unless you know who you are. You know, so right now with everything that's taking place, who isn't being thought about are our children. There's a superficial concern about our children, but the tens of millions of kids who are now a year behind in their education Millions of children are never going to catch up. Their one shot, my shot was through education to get out of those circumstances where my God brother, he didn't make it. He, he was murdered. He died. Was through education. And so their, their instance now, we're going to have millions of children who are now psychologically underdeveloped, socially underdeveloped not adhering to this conventional education about what success looks like and you being a good student and their rate of incarceration is going up, their rate of drug use, suicide, murder, the list goes on and on. And this is, again, just like I said with the obesity and the fear, I knew, like I'm telling you guys right now, the data will come out that what we've done is we've tried to protect the few and sacrificed millions of of children. Mm-hmm. In, the, in the making of it. And so this is what I'm standing for. This is what I'm doing this for because the thing is, I, do, I believe in miracles. I know that we can turn this thing around, but it's going to take a lot of us to step up mm-hmm. and to do something about it. Not superficially, but truly get our kids healthy, get our communities healthy. Start treating people as people and not as numbers on a screen or treating our children as special, unique gifts, you know, that have, again, not everybody listening, we, nobody has ever existed like us ever in the history of humanity and nobody ever will. Like this is their one, their one unique expression of life itself expressing through them. You know, it's such a beautiful thing. And for us to start to honor that, let's create systems of education that honor that, you know, that teach health. How do you tap into that? How do you care for yourself so you feel good mm-hmm. so that you have more compassion towards other people? Because we know all these things are affected by our conditions. And so um, the last thing, and thank you for, 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 for asking this question and for, for allowing me to speak on this. You know, I didn't know if I was going to be able to talk about it, man. It's, it's very, it's very com- complex, but, you know, I believe that, This is tough. Like I said, every single person, everything that you've been through, you are here and you are strong and capable. You're creative, infinitely creative. 
And the more that we can tap into that, into our resourcefulness, because a lot of the things that we're struggling with, with, with right now is a lack of resources or feeling like we don't have this, we don't have that, we don't have this support, we don't have this access, we don't have this, man, we can get stuff done. If we have to, we can get it done. Or we can outsource our thinking to the screen. You know what I mean? And that's cool. Again, let me be clear. A little bit of screen is, is all good. Like it's the golden age of television, like I said. And, you know, we've got social media and all these things, but we cannot allow this. That's not thinking. We're just, we're, my mother-in-law calls it borrowed desires. Mm. That's really what we're operating from. What does your spirit really want? What does your spirit really know? Being able to access that, you know, that's what, it, this is giving us an opportunity to do that like never before. It might seem super crazy, but a lot of the best times in our species history have come from a lot of chaos. But also, we're writing the history books right now. What cultural structure are we going to have when we move out of this? Is it one that is ushering us into being not, we're already the most unhealthy nation in the history of humanity, but are we going to, you know, 10x that? Set the bar incredibly high? Or are we going to have this renaissance mm. in health? and connectivity and love and self-respect and all these beautiful things, you know? So I, again, thank you for asking the question, allowing me to speak on it. I don't get to talk about it that often. Mm-hmm. So I, I appreciate it. Thank you. That was beautiful. Thank you. Sean Stevenson, thank you mm-hmm. so much for coming. This has been so incredible. Um, can you tell our audience just a little bit where to find you? Sure, sure. So where you're listening to this mm-hmm. awesome podcast, <laughs> you can find my show as well. It's called The Model Health Show. And yeah, it's just, we, we do masterclasses on every subject matter that you can imagine with health and wellness and relationships and all the good stuff. And also, you know, um, it's so crazy that I'm saying this again, like coming from where I come from, these are the moments. And if I could throw one other thing out there for everybody, I would implore you to start to practice gratitude. I know you people hear this, But even for the small things, you know, just a day-to-day, starting a gratitude practice, I think that I'm never jaded by this. Like, this is a total adventure for me, all this stuff every day. I'm realizing how strong I am because I'm so wrapped up, to be honest, in the adventure and the beauty of it all, Mm -hmm. but I can have both. And so coming from where I come from, there was a teacher, my eighth grade English teacher, Mrs. Blackmore. She took an interest in my writing and it's that moment. That was the spark of now I have this international best-selling book, Sleep Smarter. And my latest book, Eat Smarter, is a USA Today national bestseller. It was the number one new release of all books in the United States when it came out. Wow. And just as of this recording, last week, Mel Robbins sent me a text because I had no idea. And the audiobook for Eat Smarter was in the top 10 most downloaded in the country on Audible. Wow. And this was a, with perennial bestsellers, you know, Matthew McConaughey, um, Atomic Habits, David Goggins, all these guys that are always there. And there's this book about food and (laughs) nutrition from this guy from St. Louis. Um, So just very grateful for that. So people can pick up Eat Smarter and Sleep Smarter everywhere books are sold. And yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. This has been awesome. Thank Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, guys. We love you. We'll We'll see see you later. Bye. Bye. 
Thank you for tuning into Almost 30 Podcast. That was Sean Stevenson of the Model Health Show. And we would love if you subscribed to Almost 30. We do health, wellness, spirituality. We try and keep it really approachable and fun. And if you're new, welcome to the community. Welcome. You can also find us on Instagram. It's at Almost 30 Podcast. We share funny things, inspiring things, share a little bit of BTS about our lives and always love, love, love connecting with you. So make sure you follow us there. And I am at Lindsay Simsick on Instagram. And I am at ITS Krista. It's Krista and we'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.